0: This evening's talk is about compassion and beginning with a quote from American author and a photographer Eudora Welty My continuing passion is to part a curtain that invisible veil of indifference that falls between us and that blinds us to each other's presence, each other's wonder, each other's human plight. There is an image in Tibetan Buddhism that uh, represents the awakened energy of unconditional, boundless compassion. It's an image of a bodhisattva that's often depicted as having a thousand arms outstretched and a thousand eyes, an eye painted in the palm of each hand that's reaching out. A thousand eyes to see all the suffering of the world and a thousand arms reaching out to help. A number of years ago now, I attended a retreat with the uh, Vietnamese monk and venerable teacher uh, Thich Nhat Hanh. There were about 400 adults and also 30 children in this retreat. And the children were off each day having their own retreat. But every morning they would come uh, in front of uh, all of the adults and do a show and tell uh, before we began our retreat day. And each morning they stood up in front of us and in various ways would share what they had been doing and learning uh, during the previous day. One morning all 30 children came into the meditation hall and stood in a long line silently facing the 400 adults. And then each child stretched out both their arms uh, with their hands wide open, facing us. The palm of each child's child's hand had an eye painted on it. Mm-hmm. Then one uh, little boy walked up onto the platform where the Venerable Thich Nhat Hanh was sitting and painted an eye in the palm of one of Thay's hands. And this was their whole presentation that morning. No words, just that. It was very touching and very inspiring and really beautiful. So, compassion, karuna in Pali, what is it experientially? About 52 years ago, early one June morning, I heard the wake up stirrings of one of my newly born twin sons and holding him that morning with a a very sweet tenderness between us as he lay open-eyed and relaxed and contented in my arms and my eyes looking very deeply into his face with a kind of wonderment and curiosity. And suddenly I felt my heart tremble and quiver the, vib- the, the vibration of permeating my chest and my heart center and then moving through my whole body. A feeling of connection an intimacy with him and with life as a force, so to say. Immediately interwoven with these moments was a deep sense that this tiny being in my arms would experience many difficult things in his life. Difficult situations and many painful bodily and mental experiences within himself. A wave, uh, a breath, a wave of the breath of the suffering in life literally kind of quivered through me in the midst of these moments of sweetness and beauty between us. And some tears came, but not the aching tears of the sadness that can uh, come with feelings of attachment. That morning the tears were more like the juice of compassion. That sense that Yes, this is how it is for all of us, and for him too. That morning's experience has returned many, many times in many ways as both a teaching and a practice for me within the enormous gratitude that living life immersed in the Dhamma brings. The Buddha described compassion as the trembling, the quivering of the heart in response to pain, in response to suffering, ours or that of another being. Compassion is the heartbeat of the Buddha's teaching. It's one of the two wings with which we learn to fly free. The wing of wisdom, of... Deeply understanding the not-self nature of things and the wing of compassion. The heart's connection to beings that comes through a deep understanding of dukkha. The cycle of unsatisfactoriness that runs through most of our lives. Knowing its cause and knowing the way of its end. Because meditation practice has the power to clear away, to purify mental obscurations, purify the states of mind that constrict, that bind the heart, the mind, practice actually makes us considerably more keenly aware of and more sensitive To the suffering in this world. So, how can we bring our deepening sensitivity, our new awareness of dukkha into our practice, into this path of liberation? Our practice must be grounded in the non-judgmental acceptance that the heart of metta offers us. And it also must be grounded in concentration, mindfulness, and investigation. Meaning a clear, focused mindfulness and the discrimination of states of mind and body. Connecting with what arises and seeing it clearly. A mind, a heart, steeped in metta is what allows for the connection of mindfulness to take place in relationship to whatever arises. The blossoming of this important capacity along our way in this training is intimately involved with our growing capacity to compassionately meet and clearly see the difficult. To compassionately and wisely understand the suffering that shows up in this life. Compassion is a very tender, open state and at the same time a place within us of great strength, tenderness, openness, and strength. The capacity to stay present in relationship to whatever is happening within our own body-mind continuum and in relationship to what's going on around us and not feel overwhelmed by it. And so we gently practice maintaining our awareness of suffering when this shows up in the field of our experience. Most of us are strongly conditioned to sweep discomfort, sweep dis-ease under the rug, hide it away in the metaphoric closet or attic. Or we hide ourselves away by shutting off or going to sleep, distracting ourselves in various ways. Or possibly through ignoring or maybe trivializing suffering so that we don't see or feel the pain of others in the world, so that we don't see or feel our own pain, our own suffering. Our conditioned habits of avoidance and distraction are all based in fear. The fear that if we really recognize, connect with, and open to the pain, it will touch in too deeply and cause us more discomfort, anguish, or maybe unbearable pain. The aim of karuna, compassion, is to move towards turning our developing capacity for heartful, unconditional acceptance, metta, to gently turn the heart-mind specifically towards suffering in relationship to ourself or others. And then, with understanding and with courage, open to and move towards the alleviation of suffering. through the purification of the heart and mind that practice affords us, over time we learn to do this without getting overwhelmed by suffering, but rather to feel and know an unobstructed strength, courage, care, and understanding which is what gives us the necessary and wholesome energy to act. In cultivating the heart of metta and karuna, along with the discipline of developing concentration, mindful awareness and investigation, a whole realm of new choices, insights and responses become available to us. We meet and accept what is, which is the essence of mindfulness, the essence of mindfulness based in metta. And then in whatever ways might be appropriate, we're able to help without any aspect of aversion creating some degree of a barrier true compassion or boundless compassion as it's often called is when we have the capacity to open our heart to the suffering of all beings ourself included and in our mind not make others or ourself more important than each other compassion is neither strained nor reactive. It flows from the heart with the capacity to transform the fear, the anger, the judgment, the resentment, disappointment, grief, or expectation that might be present in relationship to another or in relationship to our own bodily and mental experiences. With the development and blossoming of compassion, we're cultivating an immeasurable impartiality, which Chogyam Trungpa, the Tibetan uh, Buddhist teacher, described as a pure and fearless openness without territorial limitation. Compassion has the power to melt, to dissolve the separation between self and other. To dissolve the separation in the direct experience of our body, heart and mind in an open-hearted and yet impersonal, non-identified way. It's our clinging to the idea of self, our deeply habituated thought of a separate solid static self that perpetuates this painful separation or as it's sometimes called duality compassion has the power to dissolve or counteract the uneasiness the discomfort the contraction or the withdrawal in the face of others or our own pain and suffering so that we're honestly and truly present with them and with ourself. How different this is from the reactive patterns of anger, fear, resentment, judgment, unhealthy grief, jealousy, or greed, or checking out, dissociating, from the mental or physical discomfort. (laughs) Most of us usually think of mental states, emotional states, as being positive or negative. As understanding deepens through our practice, we begin to know that the most important, helpful, and true way of seeing and knowing mental states is the difference between reaction and response. Reaction, or re-action, breaking that word down, is always based on the past. On past conditioned patterns that are rooted in an agenda. Patterns and agendas that are always primarily associated with I, me, me or mine. So consequently they're not connected to and don't see, don't serve the whole reality of our present moment experience. Reaction always supports and recreates some aspect of our particular karmic predicament. It reifies our habitual thoughts, actions and Self identification as this is who I am. This is who you are. Compassion is a response, not a reaction, not a reaction. There's a story about Zen Master Ryokan whose brother invited him to visit his house and speak to his delinquent son. Ryokan went, but he never said any words of admonishment to the boy during the whole visit. He stayed overnight and uh, prepared to leave early in the morning. As his wayward nephew was sitting on the ground uh, helping Ryokan lace up his straw sandals, the boy felt a warm uh, drop of water touch his hand. And glancing up, he saw his uncle Ryokan looking down at him with his eyes full of tears. Ryokan returned home, and the nephew, soon after his visit, changed for the better. Compassion training the practice and the unfolding of karuna, it's challenging, it's often difficult. It means that we take to heart the Buddha's words, I teach one thing and one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. And as we all know by now, the Buddha wasn't about to go on after that and tell us the best way to suffer. We're very well practiced with this. Nor was he recommending suffering. He was, though, pointing out that unsatisfactoriness, confusion, anguish, are all intrinsic to our human condition. Or more accurately, these states of mind are intrinsic until we wake up to the true nature of life. What he was doing was pointing out the truth of his existence, the existence of dukkha. And that looking directly, deeply and honestly at the reality of dukkha in our lives is what leads us to take the necessary steps to free ourselves from it. Which in turn leads to a transformation and relinquishment of the mental states that cause us so much anguish. Trying to control, trying to cling on to or push away or avoid events, or any moments of this constantly changing life, with the nature of it all being uncontrollable, ungovernable, ungraspable, will inevitably bring suffering. It's our relationship to phenomena that brings the suffering that the Buddha speaks about being free from. I found it amazing and illuminating when I began to see that as I practiced The particular objects that come into awareness, they don't really change very much. Basically, we keep attending to the same body-mind objects. But how we see, how we know the particular objects, how we experience the particular objects, it's our relationship to them that changes. And so we find out something really kind of astonishing and fortunate, actually, about suffering itself. That it itself is a conditional, totally contingent aspect of life. It's not an absolute. As we begin to see clearly and continue climbing the mountain of metta and compassion and wisdom, letting the heavy rock of our unskillful, cherished habits and identities roll to the bottom. We're less and less often habitually, blindly caught and trapped in old patterns of a suffering relationship to life. The capacities of kindness, Compassion, mindful awareness, concentration, and wisdom begin to take deeper and deeper root and grow. Our heart opens. We're really, truly beginning to awaken. A while ago, I received uh, a letter from a dear friend. I'd like to share some of this with you i just had an insight about compassion recently. You might know my niece has been living with me for the past year. I've had lots of conflicting emotions about this. Resenting it, irritated, wanting her to leave. But somehow, but something holding me back from actually telling her that. I recently realized it's compassion. Compassion for a kind of young, wounded soul that I'm following through on. Compassion, I think, is bound up with integrity. I realize that if I let all my conflicting feelings and issues take over, I would be compromising my integrity, my understanding and belief about the importance of compassion. Sometimes acting with compassion is hard work because it requires us to let go of limiting behaviors. So I'm still feeling some of those feelings, but feel very clear about my course of action. Life can be so rich and challenging in all its connections to friends, parents, and children. So where does the heart's capacity for compassion and our inclination to cultivate compassion. Where does this come from? The seeds of compassion within each of us have been planted many, many times. Every time we experienced another being who was willing to be with us when we were in pain. Every time we were cared for, attended to, listened to, or just simply sat with when we've been sick or hurting physically or when we've been in some emotional pain, the seeds of compassion were sown. In any moment of the purity of a compassionate connection, relationship is transformed by cutting through the me-you, subject-object dualism. Karuna is a unifying energy. The giver and the receiver are joined, not separate, in any moment of pure presence. These moments hold and carry a particular energy of the heart, the particular energy of compassion, and plant the seeds of this energy in the receiver. For most of us, this happens many, many times throughout our life, in small ways and in larger ways. And so we have many seeds to cultivate through our practice. And of course we in turn plant many seeds. Every time we remain present with another being who's suffering, who's in pain physically or emotionally, a seed of compassion is planted and the seeds of karuna within our own heart get watered and fertilized and grow. Every time we wholesomely respond rather than react both internally and outwardly to a difficult or painful set of circumstances, a seed of compassion is planted and the seeds of Karuna grow within our own heart. And sometimes the learning curve can be pretty steep. The emotional or physical pain facing us from another or within ourself asks us to step into what might be unknown territory and into an unfettered, compassionate relationship. This can take us to the very core of our being, to the very core of our subtle, self-centered agenda. The agenda that props up the veil of subtle or maybe not so subtle separation, duality, that we've been living behind maybe forever. These learning curves that come our way every once in a while. Hold the possibility for us to recognize and let go of the habitual knots that bind us, which in turn offers us the truly amazing possibility of an unfettered, compassionate connection with another and with ourself as well. Looking at it this way, The interaction within every relationship has the potential of planting a seed for the arising of a clear and true presence within both beings. The interaction within every relationship has the potential of transmission, as I mentioned briefly in relationship to metta. It's a kind of circular process. We receive the seeds of compassion as a transmission. We give the transmission to others and also, again, to ourselves through acts of compassion. And on it goes, the spiraling transmission of karuna. For me, and for many people, an amazing and inspiring Uh, contemporary embodiment uh, and transmitter of compassion was Mother Teresa. There's a video uh, about her life and her work. Um, In it there's a very short scene where she stops by the bed of a man who had just been uh, brought in off from the street who's extremely sick and emaciated. And she gets down very close to this man looking directly into his eyes and just simply lays her hand over his heart and he looks directly back at her for those few moments and for those few moments the appearance of the enormous suffering in his face changes completely into light and love. A few moments of a gentle and very powerful transmission. With the heart of compassion, there's a great strength and trust in our ability to bear witness and face whatever it is, to be with what is, without wanting it, make, wanting to make it disappear, without ignoring it, without repressing it or pretending that something else is happening. Aversion to pain, ours or another's, says, I can't stand this. I can't be near this. I can't bear this feeling. And it's so important when this comes up in the heart, when this comes up in the mind, to connect to the aversion itself, so important, to connect to the aversion itself with mindful awareness that's based in the non-judgmental connection and acceptance of metta, meeting the reactive states of mind, the reactive pattern that's arising with open-hearted mindfulness. This is the attention that connects. This is how it is right now. This is fear. This is grief. This is anger. This is judgment. This is what's happening at this moment. And this is how it is. It's so very important to recognize our limits without self-judgment however they might show up in the process of the cultivation of compassion. Karuna is never developed through force. It's appropriate and natural to back off from painful experience at times in our practice, in our life as a whole. Kindness, gentleness with ourself is an important and very necessary aspect of our practice. This is metta and karuna itself. And in relationship to this, I'd like to share a piece from a book called An Interrupted Life, which is a diary written uh, between 1941 and 1943 by a woman named Eddie Hillisom. Eddie was a twenty seven year old uh, Dutch Jewish woman in the midst who, in the midst of the second world war, lived in a large house with a group of people in Amsterdam and then, <clears throat> in very bad health, lived in the Westerbrook concentration camp and then briefly lived in Auschwitz, where she was exterminated on November thirtieth nineteen forty three amazingly, these years of great suffering throughout Europe were, for Eddie a time of enormous personal growth and, paradoxically enough, a time of personal liberation. In the midst of the scenario of extermination that was being played out all over Europe, we could say Eddie wrote the counter-scenario. Her diary is an amazing account of our possibility as human beings in the midst of immense extreme difficulty." And this is from her diary. I think that I'll do it anyway. I'll turn inward for half an hour each morning before work and listen to my inner voice. Lose myself. You could call it meditation. I'm still a bit wary of that word But anyway, why not? A quiet half hour within yourself. But it's not so simple, the sort of quiet hour. It has to be learned. A lot of unimportant inner litter and bits and pieces have to be swept out first. Even a small head can be piled high inside with irrelevant distractions. So let this be the aim of meditation, to turn one's innermost being into a vast empty plain with none of that treacherous undergrowth to impede the view. So something of God can enter you and something of love too. Not the kind of love deluxe that you revel in deliciously for half an hour taking pride in how sublime you feel, but the love you can apply to small, everyday things. And then at another point in her diary she writes, Mysticism must rest on crystal clear honesty and can only come after things have been stripped down to their naked reality." Eddie with her clear vision instinctively knew that she wouldn't return from the camps and she asked a friend to keep her diaries. She knew that she wanted to leave some Trace behind, to share the solutions that she'd found for her life. And this is from the last entry in her diary. Ever since last night, I've been lying here trying to assimilate just a little of the terrible suffering that has to be endured all over the world, to accommodate just a little of the great sorrow that the coming of winter has in store. It could not be done. Today will be a hard day. I shall lie quietly and try to anticipate something of the days that are to come. When I suffer for the vulnerable, is it not for my own vulnerability that I really suffer? And she ends her diary with this. We should be willing to act as a balm for all wounds. Survivors from the camp have confirmed that Eddie was a luminous and compassionate personality to the very last. It's important to stay mindful in the moving away from and the coming close to the opening to and the withdrawal that happens in relationship to the mental physical or situational pain that's showing up as it is with any object that we give a heartful mindful attention to in our practice our perception of the object will change as we see it more and more clearly. And consequently, our relationship to the object will also change. We need to learn to befriend ourselves, to come close to and see how it is. See how it really is. It might be a strong and intense energy, but it's not at all static or solid. Can we come so close with the great intimacy of our practice to see how it really is? Can we come so close, grounded in the heart, uh, the heart connection of acceptance with a growing compassion, and see the various colors of the rainbow of our experience truly in themselves and begin to see through these colors even the strongest of colors. If a very dear friend comes to us with their troubles we usually give them our attention and care in some way. We don't usually tell them to just stop feeling what they're feeling or tell them to get away from us in the middle, in the midst of their suffering. Our practice teaches us how to befriend ourselves, which quite naturally leads to the development and blossoming of a connection with all beings. We come to really know that in fact the pain in our heart or in our back essentially isn't any different from the pain in the heart or the back of any being anywhere in the world. For most of us, our our hand quite naturally and quite spontaneously might reach out to soothe, say, the ache in our foot or our back or our heart. What is it that sometimes holds us back from spontaneously responding to the suffering of another in this same simple and natural way. Essentially, this is due to our deeply conditioned and almost visceral clinging to the idea of being a separate self. As long as we're immersed and blindly living in and out of this fixed idea. Spontaneous concern for others will primarily be felt for those who fall into the range of who we think of as mine. And there in fact may be some degree of indifference or maybe even a more overt aversion in relationship to the pain of those who are outside of this range of mine. As our heart opens and our understanding deepens, there's an easing of the constrictive feelings and thoughts based in self-centeredness. As our heart opens and understanding grows, connection and empathy blossom. And our sense of being a closed cell dissolves. It's not that I or me, vanishes into some kind of bottomless hole of nothingness. Instead, we discover that we're really, truly, and simply a cell that forms part of the, and to quote Stephen Batchelor, the interdependent, multicellular organism of existence itself. As wind- wisdom blossoms, and our way of being in and with conventional reality is transformed we come to know experientially that I the sense of I only exists in relationship to you I and me isn't eliminated me is transformed there's only relationship I me, you, them, us, etc. have never and will never exist in isolation. Have never and will never exist in any solid, static, separate way. The notion of me and you, that seemingly fixed conceptual distinction, of me and you, begins to dissolve with the blossoming of unconditional acceptance, metta, and karuna, compassion. And in relationship to the way we go about our life, how we relate in this life, spontaneous, empathetic response begins to emerge quite naturally more and more often. We begin to understand in ourselves, so to say, that the needs of I and me are no more important than those of you. This is really the birth of unconditional kindness and compassion. From the 8th century Buddhist monk Shanti Deva, some words I should dispel the pain of others because it hurts like my own. And I should be good to them because they feel just as I do. When both they and I are the same in wanting joy and not desiring pain, what's so special about me? When I act for the sake of others no amazement or conceit arises. Just like feeding myself, I hope for nothing in return. And yet, as we know, it's not so easy, this relating to others and to ourself with the clarity of a pure, compassionate heart. As we have many old and seemingly new personal agendas, we have many, many deeply conditioned habitual patterns. I think that for many people there's confusion in relationship to the difference between pity and unhealthy grief and compassion. Both of these energies, pity and grief, are what are called the near enemies or what looks like, what masquerades as compassion. Pity actually touches pain with fear instead of mercy, instead of a true open-hearted, caring presence. Pity is a subtle form of aversion. It manifests as a contraction away from, a withdrawal, if we look really carefully. When we pity, there's a subtle, or maybe not so subtle, wanting it to be different. And also maybe some feeling that, well, I'm really glad it's not me that's suffering so much. So a tinge, a flavor of arrogance, that's a cover-up for our fear and our inability in that particular moment to be with the suffering that we're encountering. The energy of unhealthy or the unwholesome component of grief is fraught with self-centeredness. It's a very self, self-obsessed self energy and it can lead one actually into depression if it goes unrecognized. One can get caught and lost in the downward spiral of a strong and deep contraction which is if we clearly see it we find that it's a fixation on the idea of a separate, solid me and you. This fixation can often be a strong component in the midst of an unrecognized, unhealthy grief. When we feel pity in ourselves, for ourselves, or when we're caught in the self-obsession of an unhealthy grief. In those moments, we're actually not experiencing any really true caring kindness or compassion for ourself or for another being. But rather we're caught in a kind of sticky, sinking feeling. That heavy ache of feeling sorry for ourselves. That poor me with a capital M-E, feeling. In this place, there's really not much, if any, capacity to act towards taking care of ourselves or taking wholesome, appropriate care of another being. So within the natural spaciousness of a non-judgmental mind, with awareness rooted in metta? Can we practice acknowledging and coming close to our, very close to our experiences of body and mind? Letting go of relating to experience through the veil of concept, through the veil of identification, myself as a pitiable, pitiful person, but rather the possibility of here's pity here's grief this is what's arising it's not me, it's not mine, it's not who I am but it's come up how is it? metta mindfulness and compassion are necessary companions on this path to awakening and in the seeming magic that can happen when they all work together. We might be surprised at any moment by the arising of compassion in what might feel like a most unlikely circumstance. Compassion arising in a most unexpected moment in a most unexpected way. I'd like to share a piece from my diary that comes from my participation in the first Bearing Witness retreat that Roshi Bernie Glassman (coughs) held in Poland in November of 1996 at the Auschwitz concentration camp. It's well into the second month of offering the Buddha Dhamma here in Poland. Tomorrow begins a few days away from my teaching duties. I'll take the train and go to the remains of the concentration camp at Auschwitz. It's American Thanksgiving. Bernie Glassman Roshi has organized the first bearing witness retreat. As we slowly walk through the camp on this first harsh gray November morning, I'm aware of two distinct qualities of energy that seem to permeate the atmosphere, the land, the buildings, imbuing every aspect of Auschwitz that we come into contact with. The first of these is an enormous depth of sadness, an incredible heaviness and heartache that's palpable. It's everywhere, in and emanating from everything. It brings tears from the eyes of many of the 140 people attending this retreat. The stacked bunks and open sewer living spaces of the so-called prisoners. The shocking photos of children and displays of their shoes, clothes, and toys touch my heart to a depth almost too much to hold. The other quality of energy is amorphous, yet also palpable. It's in the atmosphere and at moments in my body and heart. It manifests like waves of razor-sharp edginess and tension, moments of touching what feels like insanity. This is even harder to let fully in than the immense sadness as it's far less a far less familiar feeling and thus less comfortable. There's a sense of not wanting to get too close to whatever this is. The sorrow and heartache are immediately understandable to me, but I'm not so easily comprehending the atmospheric, almost terrifying tension, the raw discordance and alienation, until one afternoon I find myself alone on my knees in front of an oven where the bodies of those murdered by the Nazis were burned. Tears stream from my eyes, and Om Mane Padme Hum, the Tibetan mantra of compassion the jewel in the heart of the lotus is the translation, spontaneously repeats out loud from my heart for the Nazis. A deep intuitive understanding of utter insanity and the untenable suffering therein is fathomed. The depth of disconnection, separation from life, from oneself, the unmitigated alienation that one would have to be living in, living with, in order to murder one, let alone millions, is recognized. My heart cracks open with this recognition. In the midst of this unforeseen insight, my whole being is flooded with unconditional compassion, not for the actions of the Nazis, but for the actors. Since that Thanksgiving retreat, I've been deeply aware that just as each of us has the capacity to help others from the heart of compassion, every one of us also knows at least moments of disconnection, separation from life, from ourselves, And the unmitigated alienation and the utter insanity untenable suffering therein. I now know so much more clearly that if one identifies with this experience as I, me, mine and mires into this self-identification, this place of great existential suffering, it can lead to outward actions that in turn cause suffering for others. As happened to such an extreme degree in Auschwitz. Since the days at Auschwitz, I'm feeling enormous gratitude that somehow all of the opportunities and blessings have been in place for me to connect with these teachings and practices, which are the best medicine for all wounds. A couple of years after I returned from Poland this story was put into a newsletter that the uh, Taos Meditation Group sent out. So I'd like to share uh, a response that I received from an Israeli uh, Dhamma student who at that time uh, was also very involved in Israeli-Palestinian peace initiative work. this is... This is from her. Thank you for the newsletter you sent me. I would like to ask your permission to translate your article about compassion to Hebrew for the Sangha here. We seem to need to be reminded of this quality, especially now when we are facing such difficult times. I was deeply touched reading your diary about the compassion you expressed for the Nazis. It was very difficult for me to understand. From my early childhood I saw the horror and the pain on the faces of the people who survived and were the parents or grandparents of friends of mine. They and other people told us every year stories from what they have experienced. I felt as if they wanted us to carry the horror with us forever. I remember once I took a night train from Copenhagen to Amsterdam and was not aware of the fact that the train had to go through Germany. I went to sleep and was awakened when the train stopped at the border and a German policeman came and asked for my passport. I was never so terrified. I felt all the blood in my veins froze. After a while, I fell asleep again and had a dream. In my dream, the train had to stop and the policeman asked everybody to step down from the train. I refused, saying again and again that I'm not allowed to tread on German (coughs) soil. Finally, I took some books that were in my bag and put them on the ground and very carefully made my way. Then I woke up. I think only then I realized how deeply I was influenced by the stories I'd heard as a child. I cannot even bear the thought of going to Poland. I'm too frightened even to think about it. From this state of mind, I tried to connect to what you experienced. I felt it very important for me to be able to make such a transition. A few days later, I watched on TV a regular video that Hamas is broadcasting after each terrorist act. A young man with guns in both his hands and, and a flag in the book of the Quran explained <coughs> that he's ready to give up his life and kill as many Israelis as possible. His eyes were empty. Life, his others, any life, has no meaning for him. I began to cry. Then I thought, maybe this was the unconditional compassion you were expressing. I could connect to this now. I wanted to share this with you, and again, to thank you. And some words from Vimala Thakkar, the Indian spiritual master who was the longtime student of uh, Krishnamurti's, who I quoted recently regarding uh, humility. She's been described as embodying the essence of enlightened consciousness and social responsibility. And these are her words. We are at odds with ourselves internally. We believe that the inner is fundamentally different from the outer. That what is me is quite separate from the not me. That division among people and nations are necessary. And yet we wonder why there are tensions, conflicts, wars in the world. The conflicts begin with minds that believe in fragmentation and are ignorant of wholeness. When we come face to face with the actualities of human and planetary suffering, what does this powerful moment of truth do to us? Do we retreat into the comforts of theories and defense mechanisms? Or are we awakened at the core of our being? And so these two wings of awakening with which we fly free. The wing of wisdom that comes about through our experiential insight into the impermanent, unsatisfactory, and not self-nature of all conditioned things. The other wing being unconditional compassion. Our heartfelt connection to beings and our way of being in this world that ensues from this. In reflecting on the lineage, lineage of these amazing teachings that we've inherited down through the centuries from our teachers and their teachers and their teachers' teachers all the way back to the Buddha. This heartfelt wisdom lineage of the extended Dhamma family. If it wasn't for the wing of the Buddha's great compassion. We wouldn't have these teachings available to us today. I always find it really interesting, uh, helpful and inspiring to read the Buddha's words about himself. He's speaking about his own humanness, which he even spoke about in relationship to his process of awakening. In one of his discourses from the Majjhima Nikaya, we find him with a small group of bhikkhus, monks, sharing with them what his thoughts were soon after his awakening. And this is, these are his words. This Dhamma that I have attained is profound, hard to see and hard to understand, peaceful and sublime, unattainable by mere reasoning, subtle to be experienced by the wise, but this generation delights in worldliness, takes delight in worldliness, rejoices in worldliness. It's hard for such a generation to see this truth. If I were to teach the Dhamma, others would not understand me. and That would be, would be wearying and troublesome for me. Enough with teaching the Dhamma that even I found hard to reach, for it will never be perceived by those who live in lust and ha- and hate. Those died in lust, wrapped in darkness, will never discern this abstruse Dhamma which goes against the worldly stream, subtle, deep, and difficult to see." And then the Buddha goes on to say, "...considering thus my mind inclined to inaction rather than to teaching the Dhamma." And then he tells his monks that soon after this a certain Brahman came to him and pleaded, This is the Brahman speaking. The world will be lost. The world will perish since the mind of the Tathagata, the enlightened one, accomplished and fully enlightened, inclines to inaction rather than to teaching the Dhamma. Venerable sir, let the blessed one teach the Dhamma. Let the sublime one teach the Dhamma. There are beings with little dust in their eyes who are wasting through not hearing the Dhamma. There will be those who will understand the Dhamma. And then the Buddha goes on talking with his monks. Then I listened to the brahman's pleading, and out of compassion for beings, I surveyed the world with the eye of a Buddha. Surveying such, I saw beings with little dust in their eyes, and with much dust in their eyes, with keen faculties and with dull faculties, with good and bad qualities. I saw beings easy to teach and hard to teach. And then I replied to the brahman, out of compassion for beings, open to them are the doors of the deathless. Let those with ears now show their faith. Thinking it would be prob- troublesome, O Brahman, I did not speak the Dhamma, subtle and sublime. So this wing of unconditional compassion, profound and subtle, and itself obviously not so easy to reach in its fullness and purity. Karuna so honestly and clearly spoken about in the Buddha's description of his own awakening. It's the wing that connects the absolute understanding of not-self to the relative nature of our humanness. One way to look at this that I think might be helpful in understanding it is this. To know Not-Self means to know directly and clearly that life is only in the immediate presence of just what is being experienced. To know compassion means that we fully attend to what arises in experience because it is all we know and can ever really, truly know. So closing the talk this evening uh, with um, a piece that was written, uh, a book that never got finished uh, from one of my students, a very dedicated Dhamma student who died of AIDS-related complications. I did mention him in another Dhamma talk a while ago. His name was Roy. And this is from his never-finished book. My first eight-day Vipassana retreat. Trepidation and desire flood my soul in equal measure. will Will I encounter deeply buried demons from my past? Will emotions overwhelm me? Will I be able to stop crying? In the days leading up to the retreat, it's as if my body is attempting to erode the quiet resolve of my mind to go. Pain gathers in my back, making my daily sit uncomfortable. Unaccountably, my my gums start to throb and bleed. My left leg grows numb. On the day I make my two-hour drive to the retreat center, a splitting headache rips through my brain, bringing me to tears. Tears. I don't care what you do, I say out loud to my body. I'm going to that retreat. (laughs) The retreat schedule looks daunting from 5.45 a.m. to 10 p.m. Nine sits alternate with eight walks for six days. Two and a half days are also full. Meals are deliciously vegetarian. The air is abuzz with insects feasting on the nectar of the hundreds of flowers around the center. Before we take up our vows of silence, I tell one of the two teachers that I may need to nap during the day. And I'm reassured by the gentle understanding I receive. Participate when you can. Rest when you need to. By our first sit, all my bodily pain is gone. Blessed silence and avoiding eye contact with others enables me to develop a cocoon of self. By the second full day, I marvel that I'm attending, to, I'm attending all of the sessions without the need for naps. I begin to feel energized and even find time to incorporate the Hatha Yoga series that I learned years ago into the schedule. I sense new levels of awareness about the nature of this practice, about the Buddha's compassion. During one Dhamma talk, we're asked to consider what a nightmare life would be if there were no change. By the fourth day, questions during talks increase in intensity. Are metta and karuna better than vipassana? In practice, is holding on to the breath different from holding a thought? If we can observe our thoughts rising and falling, where do they come from? Where do they go? We're creating an energy of trust. My heart opens to all retreatants, struggling their own struggles. Who am I to judge anyone? They are me. The rhythm of the retreat mimics the rhythm of our breath and the rhythm of nature. All around us cycles come and go, repeat and fall away. AIDS is a cycle. It's not my condition, but the human condition. It's the great gift that has taught me about impermanence. I realize how vipassana-like AIDS has been in my life, always bringing me back to the now, always reminding me to be present. And vipassana practice is a cycle. It's in my life and out. It touches everything I do and is nowhere. The last full day of the retreat, during a walking meditation, I was overwhelmed with sadness for all humanity and for the planet. I cried and cried in pain. How can there ever be an end to suffering? And then I stopped and looked up at the hill behind the meditation center, and my heart as though leaping open for a moment into the beauty of this life. The suffering and the beauty, all of it being held, but not being held onto. And let's sit silently for just a moment.